Gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, Everybody's a little bleary-eyed this morning. I don't know who invented Daylight Savings Time, but a pox on him, so... We are studying Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We have just been looking at the introduction, the first few verses over the course of the last few weeks. We're going to pick up today at uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to read through verse 6. We're going to concentrate on 6 today, so if you have your Bibles with you, or if you want to log on on your phones, that's where you would go. Now let's just go ahead and read through these words, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I pointed out when we first started looking at um, this epistle to the Philippians, that Paul's letters are, for the most part, action grams. Uh, They are a unique type of literature. Paul was writing to churches, most of the time, churches that he had established. They were the result of his ministry and work. There were a few exceptions to that, of course. The church in Rome was not a church that Paul had established. Uh, He wrote a letter to it, many considered to be his greatest and weightiest of all the letters. Um, But Paul didn't establish the church in Rome. Uh, But he did establish many other churches, and he would write letters to them. As a father in God, he felt a sense of responsibility to them, and he was writing to them to um, oftentimes correct errors in the life of the church. That was certainly the case with the church in Corinth. Uh, There were all kinds of problems in church. There There were factions in the church in Corinth. There were lawsuits among believers. Uh, There was all kinds of immoral behavior. And so Paul wrote uh, a number of letters to the church in Corinth to get them back on track. Um, To some of the other churches, uh, he simply had a word of wisdom that he wanted to impart to them. That was the case with the church in Rome. We said when it came to Philippians, one of the shortest of Paul's epistles, uh, he was writing simply to encourage this church. Um, He was writing to give them a shot in the arm and to uh, remind them to carry on in the faith. And This letter is characterized by joy and hopefulness and a spirit of anticipation in spite of the fact that it was written under adverse circumstances. We said that Paul was imprisoned at the time, his first imprisonment in Rome. Um, He was restricted in terms of his movements, and yet nevertheless this letter is filled with confidence and hopefulness and a sense of expectation. So it's a marvelous letter for us to study. Uh, One of the things you notice about Paul's letters, though, and this doesn't just apply to Philippians, but it applies to several of his letters, is that Paul sometimes, when he's talking about these great subjects, uh, the grace, the mercy, the love of God, when he's talking about human sin and the power of redemption, Paul sometimes gets carried away by his own subject matter. Uh, He just, he can't help but 
but get excited about the things that he's talking about. You know, there are those people that get excited about their subject matter. And, 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 and they just sometimes get carried away. You know, the, the, the clock means nothing to them. Um, Paul sometimes would get carried away so excited about his subject matter that he, he couldn't contain himself. We have a great example of that in Ephesians. If you keep your finger there in Philippians and turn back just a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is talking about a great mystery. The word mystery, mysterion, uh, doesn't mean mystery as we understand it today. When we think of a mystery, we think of a conundrum or a puzzle, something that is difficult to figure out. In the ancient world, a mystery was something that was unknown but was made known to those who were initiated. So it was like joining a, a, a lodge, one of the animal lodges or the Masonic lodge. There are certain things that you, the uninitiated, don't know, but when you become initiated, you are told about them. And, and Paul uses mystery in that sense here. Uh, he is saying that there was a mystery that was hidden in ages past but has now been made known to those who have been initiated into the Christian life. And that great mystery is that God is at work making one man out of two. What Paul's really talking about there is the fact that there had been a division in the first century between Jews and Gentiles, but in Christ God has acted to reconcile those two who were warring factions and make them one. And this is a great mystery, he says, but it is a miracle and it is a marvelous thing. Now, it's hard for us to understand this because we live in such a diverse society today. But in the first century, there were all kinds of classifications within society. There were all kinds of barriers between various groups. Um, the Romans didn't like the Greeks, for example. They, they looked down on the Greeks as has-beens. Uh, the Greeks looked down on the Romans as rather boorish and as copycatters when it came to their, you know, uh, their architecture and so forth. Um, the Gentiles looked down on the Jews because they thought the Jews were sort of uppity and snobbish, and the Jews, because they believed they were God's chosen people, looked down on everybody. And so there were all these divisions within society. And what was remarkable was that in the church, when people came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, those barriers, those dividing walls of hostility, that's how Paul describes them, they came down. And people realized that what they had in common, namely faith in Jesus Christ, was far greater than anything that divided them. And Paul said this was a miracle. This was one of the things that stunned the pagan world. They couldn't believe that Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, people of high estate and low estate, educated and ignorant, were all worshiping together in the same place and all contending for the same cause. This was a great miracle. And Paul would get so excited about it that he just broke into doxology. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 3. He's been talking about this great mystery. And then he says this, verse 20. Now, this is normally the kind of benediction that comes at the end of one of Paul's epistles. But we're right here at the beginning, and he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And you say, well, that's the end of the letter. No, it's the end of the third chapter. Paul's just beginning. So Paul would oftentimes just thinking about the doctrines, immediately erupt into doxology, into praise. 
Well, go back to Philippians because we have something similar here. We pointed out last week that Paul had been talking about the grace of God. He'd been talking about the peace of God. We said that grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. There's nothing that you and I can get it. It is God showing his favor toward us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we managed to get our acts together or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but God loved us in spite of the fact that we were not lovable. That's grace. We don't deserve that. And he talks about the grace of God, which leads to the peace of God. And we said that peace was not merely an absence of conflict. Peace is that shalom. Paul uses a Hebrew word here, shalom. It is that peace which passes human understanding, that peace which floods your mind and your heart and your spirit. And you can have this peace no matter what is going on in the world around you. It's that marvelous peace of God. And the only reason we can have the peace of God is because Paul says we have peace with God. And God has made peace with us. We were incapable of making peace with him. You know, when you're at war with somebody and you are on the losing side, sometimes the best thing you can do is try to make peace with your adversary. Try to come up with charitable terms. But normally in order to make that happen, you've got to offer something to your enemy. And the question is this, what can you and I offer to God that he cannot get for himself? What what can we offer to God as a peace offering? Here, we've got something, Lord, that you need. See, we have nothing. And yet what's amazing is that God, who is the injured party, the innocent party, and we are the guilty party, God is in the dominant position, we are not, and yet God, who is rich in mercy, makes peace with us through the shed blood of Christ. And now that we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God. That's what Paul is talking about there at the the beginning of Philippians. This is not just, we said, a typical greeting. This was something that was uniquely Christian that Paul was talking about. And just as doctrine often gave way to doxology in Paul's letters, what we discover here is that grace and peace give way to thanks. That's why Paul talks about grace to you and peace from God And then in verse 3, he immediately begins to thank the Lord. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is thankful for three things in particular. And we said last week that the word that is translated as thanks here is a word that should be very familiar to us. It is the word eucharisteo, the Eucharist. Uh, When we have Holy Communion, some people call it Holy Communion, some people call it the Lord's Supper, some people call it the Mass. Anglicans generally refer to it as the Holy Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word that means thanksgiving. That's why you'll notice when you get to that page in the prayer book, It's called the great thanksgiving. All right? So that's the word that Paul uses here. And it is the word that we use when we celebrate Holy Communion. It is our way of giving thanks to the Lord and offering ourselves. 
We don't offer a bloody sacrifice. The Roman Catholic Church believes that every time the priest offers the Mass, he is offering a literal sacrifice. Christ is sacrificed all over again. That's why when the priest raises the chalice, you'll hear bells ring. As Anglicans, we don't believe that. A sacrifice is offered, but it is a sacrifice of what? Praise and thanksgiving. What's being offered? We are offering ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto him. That's the word that Paul uses here. He says, I thank my God, Eucharisteo, in all my remembrance of you. The first thing that Paul thanks God for when he thinks about God's grace, when he thinks about God's peace to undeserving sinners, he thanks God for the remembrance of the Philippian believers. He thanks God that he worked in their lives. Paul no doubt was thankful for this because, in a sense, it was a seal of approval upon his own ministry, wasn't it? Paul was going out and preaching the gospel. He was being itinerant. And when he went out and he preached the gospel, people's lives were changed. God was using Paul. Now, Paul would have said it was all a matter of grace. Paul himself admits that he was not the most eloquent speaker. There were others who were better speakers than he was. And yet, nevertheless, God deigned to work through Paul and change people's lives. And the Philippians were the evidence of God's work in Paul's ministry. And so he gave thanks for them. He gave thanks for the fact that God was at work. Do you ever just pause in your prayers and just give thanks to God? You know, so often, I've said this before, but so often we treat God in prayer the way we go through the fast food checkout line at, at Chick-fil-A or, or, or McDonald's. You know, you, you drive up and, and you place your order, and you go to the window and you pay your tithe, and then you go to the next window and you pick up your order. Because that's the way we look at prayer. Prayer is that avenue by which we get to God and tell Him the things that we need so He can give them to us. We were actually out running errands yesterday, and it was amazing. Um, Kristen said, the kids want to go to Chick-fil-A. I said, okay. And when I got to Chick-fil-A, she just said, tell them you have a pickup order for Kristen. I said, well, I haven't ordered yet. She said, I did it on the cell phone. (laughs) So now you can send in your pickup order for the fast food line. I mean, and that's the way we operate, isn't it? I'm going to send my order in to God so that he can deliver it. But that's not really the point of prayer. The point of prayer is what? Communion. The point of prayer is fellowship. And certainly one aspect of our prayer life should be to give thanks. That's the first thing Paul does. Before he asks for anything, what does he do? When he reflects on the attributes of God, he gives thanks. Let me encourage you to do that in your prayer life. Before you start launching in and asking God for things, just pause and think about who he is and what he's done in the course of your life. All of your many blessings. And what you will do is the same thing Paul did. You will find that you are brimming over with thanksgiving. So Paul gave thanks for the remembrance of the Philippian believers and for their presence in his life. He gave thanks also for what he describes as their partnership in the gospel. That's in verse 5. And we said that the word that is translated there as partnership is uh, sometimes rendered fellowship, but it is the word koinonia. 
koinonia, the kind of Greek that they spoke in the ancient world, at least that Jesus spoke and the disciples spoke. They normally spoke Aramaic, but the common language, the lingua franca of the day was Koine Greek, not what we would call high classical Greek. So sometimes those who read biblical Greek go to, to Greece and they have a hard time translating the classical Greek because it is a different kind of Greece, uh, Greek. But the kind of Greek that they spoke in the ancient world was a Koine Greek. It was a common Greek. It was the language that everybody spoke. This is one of the things that made it possible for the early believers to preach the gospel throughout the known Roman Empire. Because even though the official language of Rome was Latin, the lingua franca, the language of the people, was Koine Greek, common Greek. Well, that's what the word means, to hold something in common. Now, of course, what these believers hold in common, is what Paul was rejoicing in in Ephesians, is what? It is that which is in Jesus Christ. That's what they hold in common. And so he gives thanks for the fact that they are partners in the gospel. This is not just Paul's work. I pointed out to you before, when God saves us, he saves us from something, and he saves us what? For something. These people have been saved from sin and death and judgment, but they have been saved for something to become partners with Paul in this gospel ministry. But here's the third thing that Paul was thankful for, and this is what I want us to focus on today. Paul was thankful that God always finishes what he starts. Now, that's not always true of human beings. How many times do we start something and not finish it? Every now and then, I'll start a book, and it's just so awful, but I'll plow through it. But I started a book a couple of months ago, and it was so dry that I got halfway through it and I just gave up. I could not persevere. I, I couldn't do it. It was torture. How many of you have ever started off on a project and you've not persevered? How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution and never made it past January? How many of you have ever given something up for Lent and not made it past Thursday? Paul rejoices that God is not like that. Look again at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who started the good work in the Philippians? Was it Paul? No. Who started the work in them? It was God. It's God who does the work of salvation. This should be an encouragement to you and to me. Because sometimes we will share the faith with somebody and they just don't embrace it. Sometimes you've got loved ones uh, that you want to share the good news with, but they don't seem to embrace it. Or you have friends or neighbors or acquaintances and you share the gospel with them, but they don't seem to embrace it. And you get so discouraged by that. Here's the important thing to remember. It is not our job to convert the soul. It is our job to share the gospel. The work of salvation is the work of God. And if he chooses to do it, what Paul is saying is he will finish what he starts. And that also means that if you are a Christian, be encouraged. Because if you don't think you're growing fast enough, God is still working on you. And he is going to finish what he has started in you. Now, you may not think God's working fast enough. 
But the good news is that he is not going to take you home until he's finished the work that he has for you. Let that be an encouragement to us when we panic about the coronavirus. God is not going to take you home until he has finished the work that he has given you to do. And that's what Paul is rejoicing in. This is what Reformed theologians call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The saints, and remember that the word saints, we've already looked at this here in Philippians as well, saints are not those who are a special class of Christians. They are not people who've done great things and as a consequence have been awarded this coveted title of saint. A saint is what? Any Christian. The word Christian, the word saint are interchangeable. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. The word saint means sanctified one, set apart. You've been set apart for a purpose, for the partnership of the gospel, Paul says. But if you're a Christian, you are a saint. And the fifth point of Reformed theology, I'll give you the other four in a minute, but the fifth point of Reformed theology is that the saints, because they are God's people, will persevere to the end. Those who belong to God will be faithful even unto death. Now, Jesus makes it very clear, this is something that if you're a Christian, you have to do. This is the evidence of the Christian life, that the saints do persevere. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 24. He says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Not those who are initially excited but then fall away. Remember Jesus told that parable about the soils? He said a sower went out and threw seed, and some of the seed fell on rocky soil, some fell on you know, fertile soil, but it was infested with thorns and thickets, some fell on the hard path, some fell on good soil. But a quarter of the time, at least according to that parable, the seed falls on what? Poor soil. Never produces fruit. But those for whom it falls on good soil, they will produce good fruit, they will persevere to the end, and that is the evidence of their salvation. And this is, as I said, the fifth point of Reformed theology. Now, if you want to know what the five points of Reformed theology are, and they're important, they're important to what Paul is saying here. They call it Reformed theology. It's really a misnomer. It's Christian theology, in my opinion. But the five points can be easily understood by the acronym TULIP. All right? So those of you taking pen, here it comes. T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. That means that sin has so affected us that there is not an aspect of your life or mine. Not your thoughts, not your actions, not your motivation, nothing. There's no aspect of your life that in some way is not tainted by the effects of sin. Now, I want you to understand, total depravity does not mean utter depravity. Utter depravity means we're as bad as we could possibly be. We're not as bad as we could possibly be. There is still the imago dei within us. It may be marred, but it is still there. But total depravity means there's simply not an aspect of who we are as human beings that has not at least been affected by the tragic consequences of sin. That's something to think about. So you always have to question your motivation. Why am I really doing this? You can do all the right things, but you can do them for all the wrong reasons. You can go to church, for example, but you do it out of a sense of obligation or duty as opposed to out of love for the Lord. That's an example of total depravity. So total depravity. Here's the second one. U stands for unconditional election. 
unconditional election. That is to say that God saves us apart from anything that we do. Now, why is that necessary? Because Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, says we are what in our trespasses and in our sins? Dead. And the question is, how much good can a dead person do? When was the last time you ever saw a dead person play the violin or play a round of golf? Dead people can't do anything. We're like Lazarus in the grave. And in order for Lazarus to live, Mary and Martha could stand outside the grave all day long and call him forth, but he couldn't come forth. Why? Because he was dead. So Jesus had to do what? Make him alive even when he was dead. That's exactly what Paul says happens to us. You and I are dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and God in his mercy makes us alive even when we were dead and chooses us for salvation. Unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. That simply means that those God has called, he has saved. His death upon the cross has been effective for those he has called. Limited atonement. I stands for irresistible grace. That when God begins to work in your life by means of grace... That grace is irresistible. And the P stands for the perseverance of the saints. Those who are totally depraved have been saved by unconditional election. Jesus' work upon the cross is effective and efficient for them. His grace is irresistible, and therefore the saints will persevere to the end. Now that's the idea. I should have put those up there beforehand. It would have made it easier for you. (laughs) But you'll persevere to the end, I trust. Now, this is a challenging and, for many people, a troubling doctrine because we want to imagine that we contribute something to the process of salvation, don't we? There's got to be something that we contribute to this whole process of salvation. But what I want you to know is that we really don't. It can, from a human point of view, appear as though we are offering a great deal. And and as preachers, I even preach, you know, give your life to Christ, surrender your life to Christ. And there is a sense in which we want to call you to do that. But what Paul would say is only those who have truly been called by God will respond to that calling. I'm going to give you a practical example of this from somebody's life. I'll give you one guess who it's going to be. (laughs) Of course, thank you, C.S. Lewis. It's got to be C.S. Lewis. I mean, why else? Lewis um, would tell you that his conversion came in two parts. Um, Lewis was converted from atheism to theism. That was the initial conversion, from not believing in God at all to eventually believing in God, to believe in in a creator. But he had a second conversion, really, and that was from theism to Christianity, theism in general to Christianity in particular. What I'm about to put up there comes from the book Surprised by Joy by Lewis, and it is a description of that first conversion, the conversion from agnosticism or atheism to belief in God. But I love the way he describes it. Now, he's looking back. He's already a Christian at this point. He's looking back, 
at what happened to him. And here's how Lewis puts it, as only Lewis can. He said, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, isn't that interesting? God closed in on me. He said, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was, in fact, offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. In a sense, I love that, in a sense, I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus, one of those British double-decker buses, and he said, without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or I could keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose. Here's the kicker. Yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. How many of you and you look back over the story of your own conversion, coming to Jesus Christ, particularly those of you who may have come to Christ late in life. Now, there have been some who have been raised in the church and have known Jesus their whole life, I believe that. But what about those who have come to really a true and lively faith? You may have been church but unconverted, a true and lively faith later in life. You look back and you, you, you may say to yourself, well, that's when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But actually, if you look back over the course of the events leading up to that, one of the things that you will notice is that somebody seems to have been orchestrating everything to bring you to that very point where, yes, it appeared as though you chose God, but in a sense, he had been closing in on you. How many of you ever had that experience in your life? God closing in on you. That's what it means. That's what God was doing. So even though this doctrine can be a little troubling to us, it should be encouraging because as I already pointed out, humans don't persevere. So if God has been closing in on you and bringing you to the point of decision, what Paul is saying is rejoice, give thanks, because if God has started a good work in you, God is going to see it through to completion. Now, there are, I put up on the screen, three great passages that deal with this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have time to look at them all, but let's give it a shot. We've got just about nine minutes left. So if you will, turn to John's Gospel for just a minute. To John chapter 6. We're going to go through these briefly. I want to spend most of our time on the Romans passage, but John chapter 6, verses 37 and following. This is Jesus speaking. You've probably heard these words before because they're often used at the burial office. 
John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now think about what Jesus says there. All that the Father gives to me will what? Come to me. And those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Who's doing the work? It's God, isn't it? God gives them to Jesus. And if God gives them to Jesus, they come to Jesus. And if they come to Jesus, he will not cast them out. May the God who began a good work in you see it through to the day of completion. Now, skip ahead just a couple of chapters. John chapter 10. Verses 27 and following. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. Who are the sheep of Christ? Us, the believers. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For my Father has given them to me. And he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there is a sense in which the sheep come to Jesus Christ, and that's the way it's oftentimes the way we describe it. The gospel is preached, and we give our lives to Jesus Christ, but there is a sense, Jesus is saying, in which you give your life to Christ. Why? Because God has already given you to him. He's been closing in on you. Uh, The way that G.K. Chesterton described it was the hound of heaven. He says, when the hound of heaven gets your scent, you can run away, but he's going to track you down. Now, let's look at the final passage for just a moment. And the final passage is this passage from Romans. And this is my favorite when it comes to this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 is what I want you to notice. This is that great passage that is often read at funerals. It's meant to be an encouragement to those who have lost loved ones. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons neither things present, nor things to come, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people say, Amen. Hallelujah. What a wonderful message of encouragement that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But why can nothing separate you from the love of God? Why? 
The answer is given in the verses that immediately precede. See, we always begin with that. What then shall we say to these things if God be for us, who can be against us? But that's a rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? What things? What things is Paul talking about? It's the verses that immediately precede. Remember, there were no chapter divisions. There were no paragraph divisions. So if you want to understand why nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither height nor depth, things to come, things, things past, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you want to know why, Paul gives you the answer, and the answer is in chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. Here it comes, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He what? Glorified. I call these the five golden links. And that's when Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God? Because those whom God predestines, he calls. And those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. Who does the calling? Who does the predestining? Who does the justifying? Who does the glorifying? Who does the work? What do we contribute? Nothing but the sin from which we need to be redeemed. And if God is doing all of that, and God always finishes what He starts, then this is a message of great encouragement, isn't it, to you and to me? You may not be the man or the woman that you want to be. How many of you want to be the? How many of you are the man or woman you want to be? Anybody? How many of you, however, can look back over your life and realize you are not the man or woman you used to be? If God is at work in your life, I want you to be encouraged. If he started a good work in you, whatever that work is, he is going to finish the job until ultimately you, like his son Jesus Christ, are glorified. And Paul gives thanks for that. I have a lot more to say. I didn't think I'd get through it today, um, and I didn't. But when we come back next week, we'll finish this section. But what a wonderful message of encouragement to us. That the work of salvation, my friends, is not our work. It's the work of God. If you're a believer today, it may seem as though you gave your life over to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You're going to hear a sermon today from me in which I encourage you to do that. But if you have given your life over to Jesus Christ and you're honest as you look back over the course of the years, one of the things that you will realize is that you chose Christ because he chose you. 
The hound of heaven got your scent. And all along he's been closing in on you. And it may seem as though you were presented with a wholly free choice. But in the end, you realize there was nothing else you really could have done. And that is why we can say to God and God alone be the glory. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this epistle to the Philippians. There's so much here packed into just a few words, but we are thankful for it. Great doctrines, great doctrines that make us want to erupt in great doxology, praise of you, our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you've started a good work in us, and we trust, Lord, that you will see it through to the end, that we will persevere until we are glorified with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.